willpower is an exhaustible resource. It really requires so much brain power to use willpower. And honestly, you know, people might wonder, I, you know, I can maintain my diet until noon, but by 1 p.m., 2 p.m., I can't. Why is that? It's because you've used up all your willpower trying to resist eating whatever foods you're trying to resist. There's great research um, looking at college students and asking them to avoid eating a bowl of radishes or avoid eating a, a plate of cookies. And those that have to resist for 15 minutes, resist eating a plate of cookies, and then they're given different cognitive tasks, fail these tasks. They do half as well as the people who didn't have to resist the cookies. And they take twice as long to complete these tasks. That is how uh, draining it is to exercise our willpower. So we cannot rely on willpower when we are trying to change our diet. Hi there, veggie mates. You just heard from Malena Esherick. She is this week's special guest. I'm your host, Matthew Davey, and this is the Veg Talk Podcast. Welcome back for another week. They keep flying past, and I'm stoked to be bringing you episode number 50 of the podcast, a small milestone for us. I have a massive favor to ask you all. We need your help, and this only takes a couple of minutes. You have my word. Before you listen to the episode, please quickly go to the Apple Podcast app or iTunes to leave a five-star rating and short review if you have enjoyed any of the past conversations. This action is so important. We're swimming in a sea of about 750,000 podcasts worldwide and would like our guests to have a larger platform to share their stories and knowledge. If you have already taken the time to do this or will be taking the time today, I thank you. Your support is much appreciated. Now let's shift our focus to this week's episode with our amazing guest, Malena Esherick. So Malena is a psychologist at the Wright Institute in Berkeley, California, and specializes in the behavior of dietary change. We had a fascinating conversation about how we can be more effective listeners and activists in order to propel this movement to where it needs to be. We also chat about how hard it is for humans to make change in our lives, in this case, specifically diet. Melania gives us the tools to help others and also empower ourselves to create an environment where our goals will most likely be achieved. I really hope you enjoy the show. Please leave us a message on the VegTalk Instagram page and let us know what you thought. That's enough from me now, folks. As always, I will catch you on the other side to wrap things up. All right, we're rolling, and it feels like the heat wave of today <laughs> is starting to subside, and it's getting a little cooler. We are in San Francisco, or we're actually in Oakland, California. We are with Malena Escherich today, and yeah, we're so stoked to be with you. Thank you. I'm super excited to be here and talk about what I care about most. Yes, thanks, thanks for the time and, and coming on the show today. If you aren't familiar with Malena, uh, she is a psychologist. Uh, at the Wright Institute mm -hmm. here in California. It's in Berkeley? In Berkeley, yes. Yep, so not far from here. Mm -hmm. And specializes in the behavior of dietary change. Mm -hmm. And yeah, super fascinating topic. I think it's something that as vegans, we often think about and we, you know, we look at people on the other side of the fence or the the other side of the coin and we're thinking, why are they doing it? <laughs> yes. What What's the barrier? You know, we've mm -hmm. got all these great reasons for you to be changing to a plant-based diet but what is what's stopping you so yeah. we're going to tackle some of those things today 
um, which I'm really looking forward to. But before we get into that part mm-hmm. of um, you know your work and, and the conversation, I'd love to hear a little bit about your background, where you're from and how you got to where you are today and also maybe just a bit on your, your vegan story, vegan journey. That'd be really cool. Sure, very happy to share my story. Um, I grew up in New Mexico eating the standard American diet and continued that all the way through my 30s. Had never thought about factory farming or where my food came from. And it was very randomly that I got exposed to veganism. A good friend of mine, shout out to Daedalus Hyde, who was another psychologist, vegan psychologist in the Bay Area. He took me to an animal rights conference, but I didn't know what animal rights was. I thought I was going to go learn about ways to volunteer with marine animals or dogs and cats or I didn't know. I just liked animals. He knew I liked animals and said, come follow me to this conference. And when I got there, there were all these pamphlets about farmed animals and I was horrified. I actually couldn't look at them at first. It just made me too, too sad, too upsetting. So Um, I would kind of walk past the exhibit booth thinking I should go in there at some point, but I can't right now. And I went to um, talks about factory farming and was sobbing, couldn't believe that this was the condition of farmed animals and how did I not know this and how had I been contributing to the suffering of animals for so long. I just felt terrible and they were serving vegan food at that weekend. So I started eating vegan. And by the end of the conference, I got the guts to go into the exhibit hall and I knew I couldn't do it without crying, but I decided I needed this information and I I was just gonna have to cry through the tabling and people would have to be okay with that. So I couldn't make eye contact with anybody. I just had my bag and I got leaflets from every table and I was going on vacation camping in Oregon the following week. So I took my bag, quiet place by the river, nobody to disturb me, and just read through all the information about how all kinds of different animals are exploited in this world and learned all about the different farmed animals and how they're treated and took notes because I said, that's it. There's no way I'm going to participate in this. It's not okay, I can't be a part of this, but I knew it would be hard to continue to be vegan in a non-vegan world. So I took very detailed notes that when I labeled them something like, don't ever forget, (laughs) or if you're ever thinking of not being vegan, read this as a reminder of how terrible things are. So I, yeah, went vegan that day about eight years ago and have not looked back. It's a very unusual story. It's not how most people shift to veganism. Um, You know, most people, the process is much slower and gradual, and that tends to stick and last longer, but I'm kind of an anomaly in that way. (laughs) The reminders helped. (laughs) They kept you on track. That's a cool kind of way to do it as well. I mean, it can be hard sometimes when, you know, we make the switch and you're confronted with all these new conversations in social circles and you know work circles and you get challenged yes and it's easy to go back you know it's it's very easy to go back to old habits so to have those reminders is is definitely helpful yes to have those reminders and i think 
I was very, very lucky in that when I went vegan, I immediately got connected to a large vegan community. I think that saved me and made it really easy, easier for me. I had, um, you know, just starting at the animal rights conference, I was naive and I asked all the questions that tend to annoy vegans like, well, I'm sure the animals that I eat are treated well. I shop at Whole Foods and um, where would I get my protein if I was not eating animal meat? And um, uh, I don't really eat that much meat anyway. And luckily I ended up with a group of people that were all very kind and generous and welcoming and sweet and warm and forgiving of my ignorance at the time and brought me in and just were so nice. I wanted to know them more. I wanted to interact with them more. And, um, you know, they didn't shame me. They didn't guilt trip me. They didn't judge me. And so that was a very nice um, introduction to the movement. And then when I came back home, I was incredibly lucky that um, Christy Middleton, who I think you're going to have on the show as well, uh, lives in the area in Oakland, and she started Oakland Veg Week. And that was going on kind of the following week, and there were activities every night and lectures. So I went every night, and I met new people who were very nice and inviting <laughs> and brought me into the movement and had this kind of instant friendship with people who then said, oh, and there's this other veg activity over here and another veg activity over here. Come join us. So I had this very big, lively community from the get-go that, you know, took me grocery shopping and cooked meals for me and showed me what vegans eat for breakfast and lunch and dinner. And so I had an easy road, I think, living in the Bay Area, being surrounded by so many other vegans. My path was much easier than most. <laughs> it sounds like they ticked all the boxes that I've been reading about. Yes, about how yeah. to persuade and <laughs> yeah. have influence and be a good activist. <laughs> it sounds like they've done a good job. Yes. That's really good to hear. Um, yeah, it's super important, isn't it? To, to feel that way when, when making change in our life. Right, we yeah. want to go towards people who are nice and kind and welcoming and warm and sweet to us and who like us and who take us under their wing that feels good we want to be a part of that movement but our tendency i think as early vegans is to be so angry especially at people who are not vegan and we can turn people off with our anger we don't realize the negative impact we're having totally yeah, let's get into that into a moment. I'd, I'd love to hear a little bit about uh, your professional kind of studying life okay. mm -hmm. and yeah, how that went from economics at, <laughs> at UC, yes. um, UC Berkeley uh -huh. uh, to, to where you are today. Sure. And then the moment where I suppose that you wanted to connect everything uh, that you'd been working on with your new kind of, you know, your new change. Okay. Yeah, I started off as a science major. I thought I would be a geneticist. I was really interested in like neurobiology, but that got complicated at Cal and ended up switching gears in my junior year, taking a random smattering of classes and found economics and loved, loved economics because it explained human behavior with numbers, with math, which I really like. And I think if behavioral economics had existed when I went to school, that would have been my love <laughs> to really be able to explain why people behave the way that they do. 
But um, I didn't know what to do in terms of a career with economics. Cal is a very big school. I didn't have any mentoring or advising. I didn't know any economists. It would never occur to me to speak to a professor. So I ended up um, working, just randomly got a job in working in substance use treatment and did that for a number of years, not knowing what the heck I was doing and thought, I better go to school to figure out how to be helpful here. And so at first I got a two-year degree as a substance use counselor and was working a lot with couples and families and adolescents to help them uh, into recovery and still felt I really have a lot to learn. I don't understand um, human behavior well enough and so decided to go back to school to get a doctorate in clinical psychology and I ended up doing that at the Wright Institute in, in Berkeley and that is a very generalist degree so trained to work with all ages and all diagnoses um, all types of different settings and then I decided to I was working a lot with um, young men and women with substance use issues and eating disorders and felt once again I don't know how to help people with eating disorders I don't have a lot of training in this you know maybe I had a class in it but what's the answer so decided to do my dissertation research on um, how women recover from eating disorders and there wasn't really anything at the literature at the time that was written by women in recovery asking them how what was helpful and so I interviewed a number of women and asked them about their experience how they changed their eating habits and so just you know through that literature review through that research through my work I worked for six years as the director of an eating disorders program at El Camino Hospital in Mountain View I learned a lot about diets and dietary change and nutrition <laughs> and, um, and then when I became vegan I was trying to figure out how can I be useful to this movement what do I have to offer I haven't been working as a grassroots activist for years and years and so I realized all of my you know education and experience helping women change their eating habits would be very applicable to helping people shift to a plant-based diet and then the other piece that I thought I could be helpful in was thinking about persuasion and kind of the the science of influence how can activists be as effective as possible if we understand really human nature and psychology I think that's what's required to be an effective activist we have to be a, a good psychologist at heart totally yeah and often something we probably don't think about right I don't think we do no. I think we it's easy initially it's a, a normal stage of kind of identity development as a vegan to uh, be angry. That's completely understandable. This is horrific what is happening, that level of suffering. To not respond with anger would be weird, but um, it's not an effective tool for shifting other people. So how do we move out of anger into effectiveness? And, and I was curious for myself, because I was an angry vegan too. I was suffering and sad and miserable and guilt-ridden and furious at other people for not changing. So I also had to kind of review the psychological literature again to understand why are all my friends and family not immediately converting like I did? It's so obvious. <laughs> it was painful that they didn't. So I had to try to wrap my head around that. <laughs> yeah, I think that's such a great... A great thing to know is that, you know, someone that has been uh, steeped in the 
psychology field for for quite a while mm-hmm. <laughs> Under- years, understands yes. human behavior <laughs> and then has this you know i suppose deep shift in consciousness if you will yes yes but can't apply <laughs> right what you've learned yes immediately you, you know yes. it did involve some kind of catch up absolutely yeah. yeah it was so extra frustrating because i have a doctorate in this field i should really know how to manage my own emotions and be an effective communicator and be able to motivate people how am i <laughs> struggling so much yeah no totally that, <laughs> that must be frustrating for for me it was i think it was yeah it was the same just without the background you know <laughs> just pure frustration of like why isn't this effective yeah Yeah. why why is it not effective and we all i think we all get there we all learn Mm -hmm. uh and we take kind of the the longer route yes it takes time because we have to we have to see the reactions of people Mm -hmm. understand them and figure out why it is that way but to Mm -hmm. to maybe get a head start Mm -hmm. would be super helpful Right. If we know ahead of time, this is the progression. This is, and that is what helped me. I came across our, you know, cultural identity model, stages of identity development that we move through, whether we are in a, you know, the dominant culture or in kind of a a target oppressed group. And the same principles apply to veganism, right? It's a, it's a non-dominant target group. We're not part of the majority. And there are basically you know, five stages of identity development that people go through as they kind of evolve and grow up and become aware of their own culture, become aware of the dominant culture, dynamics of power and privilege. And, and they're, you know, at the initial stages are, we're completely unaware. I don't know what other people are eating. I haven't thought about it at all. And then there's a stage of, oh, I'm aware maybe that some people are vegetarian, some eat meat, and I'm part of the dominant culture that eats meat. And I think that's fine. I don't have any questions or criticisms about that and then the next stage is maybe we meet a vegan we learn about animal suffering and we might start to question the dominant paradigm Uh uh-oh what's this about I don't want to support this and we're angry and we are furious at the dominant culture the meat eaters like how could you do this how do you not see I don't want to have anything to do with you that is normal we're kind of coming into our own this awareness it's really hard and we want to be surrounded by like-minded people we want our affinity group and then there's another stage of development where we kind of start to appreciate all the positives of of veganism and try to kind of solidify that identity and we may still you know Uh, want to be mostly with other vegans, but maybe we're starting to kind of reach out and have friendships with uh, non-vegans. But it takes kind of this, the fifth stage of identity development is quite a high level of integration as a vegan and all the positives that it means to be vegan and not feeling oppressed by the meat eating culture and being able to reach out and have allies who are not vegan. Um, And to notice all the intersections of our identity and where we have, um, you know, again, power and privilege, where do we fall in the dominant culture or not dominant culture? We have more humility at that stage, but like that's advanced and that takes years and years to get to that. And my experience is that, yeah, many vegans hang out in stage two or three for a while. And it's, for me, I was very lucky in that I got plopped into 
uh, community of vegans who were already level five. They'd been vegan for 20 years already. So they'd kind of gone through that angry stage and um, were much more willing to be, and you know, saw me as an ally early on, even though I didn't know anything and was saying hurtful, uninformed <laughs> things. Like I was probably pretty annoying, but they could tolerate me at that point. I didn't, you know, I wasn't going to challenge their sense of self, right? They could hold on to themselves without being impacted by kind of all the negativity in the world or any weird stuff that I was saying at the time. Level five vegans. Level five vegan. <laughs> <laughs> so in, in level five, ve we kind of joke about it in the vegan community, right? Like we have to be perfect. Are you 100% vegan? Are you only 99% vegan? Is your shampoo vegan? Are your shoes, right? We get very picky about that versus I would reframe it to like level five vegan is... I'm um, compassionate and kind and flexible and can work and with others who maybe are not, um, you know, plant-based or veg, wherever they are in the continuum, I can find other people to, to communicate and collaborate with. It's away from the, the purity yeah, kind yeah. of um, mindset. Yes. Yeah, yeah it's... Um, it's not... I suppose the the purity and the that ideological way of thinking doesn't necessarily create a bunch of more vegans. Right. It often turns people away. Right. Rather than bring them in. So let's I think it's a good time to kind of go down that track as as an advocate. Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So as someone that you know has already adopted a plant-based lifestyle or a vegan lifestyle mm -hmm. and you know they want to I suppose, effectively speak about it in their community. Right. Where where do they often meet the person at stage one? Mm -hmm. So if I'm, you know, I've been vegan for three, three years, but mm -hmm. if I've just gone vegan mm -hmm. and you yourself, you're not, you know, haven't mm -hmm. thought about it, you're, you're over at stage one. Right. What, where is the common place for me to meet you? And mm -hmm. where, where are we usually getting it wrong? I think there is this natural tendency as, you know, a newly enlightened vegan with this change in consciousness and awareness to want to convert immediately and to want somebody to shift into changing their behaviors immediately. There's also um, stages of change that we go through whenever we make a behavior change and we interact with people like they're ready to change without appreciating that most people are in what we would say a psychologist is in the pre-contemplation stage. They're not even thinking about it at all. They're not aware. They don't have any thoughts about changing their diet and eating fewer animal products. So we have to meet them in that stage, not in the like stage four, which is action stage. I'm ready to shift my diet. And that stage is really about building relationships, being friendly, being likable, role modeling, and, you know, getting that person curious, interested, just through you know, you being a good, welcoming, kind friend to them. I mean, that's, I think it's funny now in hindsight, my friend Daedalus, who brought me into veganism, I'm a little bit mad at him because he didn't challenge me earlier. I feel like pushed, I'm like, I could have been vegan a lot earlier if you had pushed me a little more. But he like never mentioned veganism, never said, why are you eating that or change? He just, we were just friends. We just hung out. We'd go out to eat and I'm like, what are you eating? Why are you eating that? What is that? <laughs> uh, you know, come to this animal event with me. It's, I'm not trying to convert you to veganism. Just let's go hang out with some animal people. Okay. Right. He exposed me to, 
to people and ideas and food. There was no threat there because whenever we push and we confront and we demand change, we automatically build people's resistance. They're going to push back. None of us want to be controlled. None of us want to be told what to do. None of us want to be judged. We don't want to be made to feel guilty. All of those things are going to make us put our walls up and make us less likely to change. Totally, totally. What I'm just thinking back to, to my early days and, you know, how do we, how do we fight the intuition mm-hmm. <laughs> of, you know, being the angry vegan. Yeah. So like the first thing that we want to, we want to get in mm-hmm. more of a, a, a debate. Yes. Yes. Rather than <laughs> flow a join. with the person. Yes. So I saw like dance. Right. Rather than. Wrestle. Wrestle. Yes. So yeah. Is there, are there any ways that is it just awareness, basically? Is it just awareness of our actions that, that helps us to get past that stage of, um, yeah, getting in a wrestling match? It's a great question, and I think what's most helpful in that beginning stage is surrounding yourself with other vegans where there is a time and a place, right? We want to be able to get angry and say, I'm so hurt and I'm so frustrated. I'm so mad. And I've told my parents and I've told my friends and why are they not changing? This is killing me. I'm at the dinner table and there's a dead animal on the table and I'm, I can't do it, right? We have to have an outlet. We have to have support for that. So how do we find that among other vegans where we're not going to turn them off? They can hold that. They can hear that and kind of get ourselves resourced to be able to go out into the world and be effective, right? Do I want to be angry? Do I want to be effective? Of course I'm angry. I can't stop that. I have those emotions. And hopefully education and podcasts like this, and we learn that, um, yeah, what is my ultimate goal? My ultimate goal is to be effective, to have influence, to show people that, um, you know, this is just a lovely, compassionate way we can be in the world. And so holding that higher value, right, how do we regulate our emotions internally? <laughs> Those are important skills um, so that we can engage, you know, kindly and effectively. And it's hard. I, I told you, you know, me as a psychologist who has the training to, um, you know, try to communicate in difficult situations, even when I'm feeling activated, uh, it, I have to do a lot of mental gymnastics and emotional gymnastics to keep my cool. It's painful. I certainly am still in situations where people are eating animal products and my heart aches and I have to hold that. I have to manage that. That's, that's kind of what I can do for the animals. And um, I fail. I blow it sometimes. I'm sure my family will listen to this podcast and be like, you weren't that nice to us all the time. (laughs) (laughs) I was pretty, you know, if looks could kill in the early days, I'd be pretty mad sitting at the table watching them eat animal products. (laughs) I think often the the people we love the most are the ones that cop the the, the worst of it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I think they are. Because we're so, so, exactly right. Why do we get so angry at our spouses our partners our family members our best friends versus random person on the street yeah i I think it's just down to like the level of comfort we have with those people conversing with them you know we're comfortable with them Mm -hmm. and in turn we feel like (laughs) we can push the boundaries a little more but it doesn't work no No. and i think it 
hurts us more the closer the person is to us, right? We want them. How can they not have the same values as me? How can they not behave the same way as me when in all these other ways we're so similar and we're so connected? It, it feels so much more painful to have that difference, that disconnection with somebody that you're very close to. Definitely. Definitely. How important is empathy and listening <laughs> when we just, when all we want to do is regurgitate facts right <laughs> how important is actually listening to someone i like to think about listening as free research we learn what's important to that person what they care about do they care about the environment do they care about health reasons do they care about animal suffering what is it that motivates them we don't know unless we're listening i will give you an example I was tabling for the Humane Society of the United States and I was new as a volunteer and people were coming up asking about what are some ways that they could volunteer, what does the Humane Society do for animals and I was feeling anxious and trying to remember all of the different initiatives of HSUS and trying to talk about you know this department and that department and that department and I finally stopped myself and said Melina, first rule of thumb, ask questions, listen, what do they care about? So I turned to this young woman, what, tell me what interests you, what do you care most about? And she's like, I really care about farm animals. I'm like, oh, let me tell you all about the Farm Animal Protection Division, which is actually the division I care most about, you know? And so it was perfect, but I could have gone on and on talking about all these different areas that HSUS works in, and she didn't care about those. What did she care about? So, yeah, it's so important to, to connect, to talk about what matters most to that person. Be a bit of a human first, <laughs> right. you know, rather than some kind of robot. And try to attach and connect. You know, the persuasion research is very clear. We um, are influenced by people. We say yes to people. If we feel they care about us, they care about what we have to say, they care about our feelings, we make them feel good in the interaction. So our primary task is we want the person to have a good experience interacting with us. How do we do that? We listen. We all like to be listened to. That feels delightful. That shows we care. Tell me more. Who are you? That's a juicy good interaction that's going to be ultimately effective. A really good seed. <laughs> a good seed. Yeah, <laughs> definitely, definitely. And what if you are not like yourself? You said you're, an, you know, an introverted person. Yes. If you are an introverted person, you, you know, you care deeply about these these topics. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Are there ways that you can bring yourself to come across as more likable, outgoing, mm -hmm. uh, friendly, happy? Yes. You know, <laughs> maybe the things that we uh, would struggle with as introverts. Right. I do have to switch modes. Like if I'm at a public event, if I'm doing a, a speaking engagement, I really have to consciously shift and know that I'm going to impact my audience. I'm going to be more effective if I am sociable, engaging, if I learn people's names, if I say hello, if I have a shout out to certain people, shaking hands. Um, yeah, being personable, having those one-on-one -on -one interactions even before I go on stage that matters even though it's so hard for me and so um, it's against my nat my natural tendency is to hide in the room and have nobody see me but I have to again think about how am I going to be most effective Melina you've got to do what is what is hard and um, yeah it is more challenging as an introvert but I think the rewards are 
great. <laughs> cool. Yeah, no, that, that's good to know because I think often, you know, if you are an introverted person, uh, you think the advocacy part, the, the interaction is, it's not for me maybe. Mm-hmm, you know, that mm-hmm. might not be so much for me despite the fact that it's really, you know, something you care about. But right. y- you can get into it. Absolutely. Yeah. And activism can look all different ways, right? I mean, my colleague Daedalus was uh, very much an introvert. We had one-on-one conversations. We get to connect deeply, emotionally, intellectually. Um, you know, an introvert may d- not decide to go speak to a room of hundreds of people. That may not be what they want to do. I tend to you know, be introverted and also like to teach. <laughs> so it's a weird combination. But um, yeah, you don't have to, to do that. I hear a lot of people in the media space, whether it's podcasts or YouTubers mm-hmm. or uh, Instagrammers, bloggers, whatever it might be, that say they're introverted. Mm-hmm. But they're really effective and they come across as outgoing people. But what they say is it really just means that I have to recharge on my own. Mm-hmm. Right. I'm going to want more time before a speaking event or public event, more time alone after <laughs> to um, collect myself. I don't need as much kind of external stimulation. My brain can entertain itself for many hours. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. Are there any people in the the animal rights space or mm-hmm. the, the vegan space that you see as really good communicators, mm. really good influencers? Yeah, one person that, I mean, there's so, so many, um, that's really influenced me, uh, have loved learning from him, reading his books and going to his presentations is, um, and I hope I will pronounce his name correctly, Tobias Lienert. Um, he has a book out, How to Create a Vegan World, A Pragmatic Approach. I love his writings, his thinking have really influenced my thinking about, again, how do we be as effective as possible? What's the research? What works? What doesn't work? I also really like Nick Cooney's book, Change of Change of Heart, is great kind of synthesis of the literature on um, marketing, communication, psychology, social psychology. So I think every activist should, um, yeah, really educate themselves on, on the science of what is, what makes for effective activism. I'm sure it's been a game changer for a lot of activists out there. You know, once they have this information and they see what they can do when they put it into practice right. and the reactions they then get, I'm sure it's one of those moments where everything kind of clicks and comes together. A guy that comes to mind for me, not sure if you're aware of him, British guy. His name's Earthling Ed. Mm, I don't know him. I feel like he has the handbook... Mm. just you know he knows it back to front uh-huh everything i've read from you he's very very good at okay even the the salt shaker thing oh nice <laughs> like i was just like this reminds me of uh-huh. the way he conducts himself and, oh, good. and and speaks he you should check him out i okay, think okay i will i think you'd really like him he actually just did a bit of a tour around the ivy league schools mm. here in america so he came over from uh, from England. Okay. And he did some lecturing, I believe. At, mm-hmm. um, I know he went to Harvard, yeah. maybe Yale, Brown. Brown. Mm-hmm. Really cool. Oh. And uh, he d- he engages in a lot of debates. Yes. Um, and they're great to watch. Yeah. He's, okay. He's really good. But I need to check out some of the books that um, 
that you've mentioned, and I'd love I'll put them in the oh, good. in the intro. I've got so a long list. There's of a yeah, there's books. a there's a list of books that I can recommend for everyone. So yeah, I, I think that's a little bit on, about on how we can be better advocates. Yes, I would say the theme is be likable yep. <laughs> and be generous is another piece we haven't touched on. Yes, which. Um, it's fascinating, the, the research on how we are primed to give back if someone does something for us. So if somebody is kind to us, we are kind back. If somebody gives us something, we want to do something for them in return. It's, it's this very, we want to reciprocate. We're kind of hardwired to reciprocate. So some of the fascinating research is around, for example, um, if you at a restaurant, if the waitress with, when she hands you the receipt, your bill gives you a mint with that, your tip is higher. Like a little mint increases the size of your tip. Or if people are buying raffle tickets, if you give them a free drink uh, before they buy the raffle tickets, they will buy more raffle tickets. Or this research fascinated me. Have you ever gotten in the, the mail um, some requests for donations and it comes with the free address labels. I'm always like, why do they spend all this money on this paper and these address labels? They do it because it increases the amount of donations by 35%. That is dramatic. So these little bits of, of giving really prime us to give in return. And that also applies in communication. If we're in a conversation with somebody, and we may be disagreeing, we may have very different opinions about something, if we can, throughout our conversations, um, give by saying, oh yes, I agree, oh that makes sense, that's a good point. Those are gifts, those prime cooperation from the other person. If I have said yes to this part of your argument, you are more likely to say yes to the next thing I say. And again, it makes the conversation go better and people are more likely to be influenced and to change if they've had a good experience with you. If they come away feeling like, that was really enjoyable, that was fun, there was a give and take there. They listened to me, huh, I'm curious about what they had to say. So I always think about the yes, salt shaker sprinkle lots of yeses into your communications <laughs> exactly it's a it's like a relationship it's yes all, it's all about compromise yes <laughs> yeah you can't be and, it's not all one-way traffic right and validating and affirming and being positive that being optimistic being positive all of that goes a long long way no all really good points yeah i love learning about this this kind of stuff it's it's very interesting so that is on you know, the advocacy side. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now let's say that we've had a piece of successful activism. <laughs> Somebody wants to change. <laughs> and someone's like, Malena, you know what? I'm ready to, to switch. I, mm -hmm. You know, this all makes sense to me. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, I'm really passionate about all of the topics you've covered, you know, whether it's the environment, health, uh, animal welfare, I'm going to do it. But how do I do it? Right. You know, I've got mm -hmm. all these friends that are not vegan mm -hmm, mm -hmm. they're not vegetarian right. i still have to go to parties with those guys mm -hmm. you know i have to invite or i go to dinners with them and we a lot of our involvement is around meals yes and my my own behavior mm -hmm, mm -hmm. i've been doing this for 30 years so 
How do I change? How do I change? Yeah, it's a great, great question. And you're talking about somebody who is now in kind of the preparation stage. They are ready. They have moved from pre-contemplation. I'm not thinking about this at all through contemplation. Maybe I'll change. I don't know. What are the pros and cons to preparation? I'm, I'm ready to make this change. How do I make this change? And then moving into the action stage. I am actually going to eat plant-based. So there's a lot of work to be done in that preparation stage. And there are tools and tips, which I will share, and we can also post on your website, that I think make it easier. Because there's often this myth in the world that once you decide, then it just happens. It's easy. I'm going to decide to change my diet. I'm going to decide to lose weight. I'm going to decide to exercise. I'm going to decide to sleep well. How many of us have made those commitments and not followed through with it despite our great desire to change our behaviors? It's not that easy. And that's kind of the number one message I hope people take away is change is really, really hard. And we have to have compassion for ourselves and for other people along that, that process. I often, when I give talks, talk about how trying to change behavior is about as hard as moving an elephant. Like elephants do not move easily. You can't push an elephant out of the way. We need a whole lot of tools to be successful. We can't rely on willpower and desire and knowledge alone. So how I think about it is um, it's kind of a simple way to think about the brain where one part of your brain is I'll, Thank you. <laughs> I was not close enough to the microphone. So one part of the brain is, I'll call it the writer, the literature kind of breaks it down this way. So the writer is your very analytical thinking, planning part of your brain. It's the part of your brain that says, yes, I want to eat healthy. I want to exercise. I'm going to make this New Year's resolution. Likes to plan. But then we have another side of our brain, which is the elephant, the emotional, impulsive. I want it now. I said I was going to eat healthy, but then my colleagues just brought cookies into the staff room and the elephant's like, give me a cookie. And I can't stop myself. So what do we do? How do we take care of the rider and the elephant? How do we make it easy for them to get along? So a couple strategies to help the rider part of our brain that likes to plan is to make the change really simple, concrete, practical, detail-oriented. So instead of I'm going to eat healthy or I'm going to eat plant-based. That is too big. That freaks the writer out. It doesn't know what to do. It's overwhelming. So we have to break that down into something as simple as I am going to buy plant-based milk the next time I'm at the grocery store and in the dairy aisle. Instead of buying cow's milk, I'm going to buy soy milk. That is very simple, very concrete, very doable. Or it might be on Mondays, I'm going to eat meat-free. I'm not going to have meat on Mondays. That's one day manageable. Or I'm going to eat vegan before 6 p.m. What is something, and everybody's at a different stage of change, or what is possible for them to do. So what's a manageable step, and what's a very concrete next step they can take to be successful? Also, just going to the grocery store with a grocery shopping list makes a huge, huge difference in what we buy. So planning ahead, what do I want to eat? My writer self says, oh, I should buy some vegetables and some nuts and maybe, you know, some grains and 
whatever good healthy foods we want on our list. But if we go to the grocery store without that list, our elephant takes over. And for me, my elephant's like, I would like some ice cream and some frozen pizza and junk food. That's what I crave. So we want our writer in charge when we are at the grocery store. Um, we can also help our writer out by noticing where we already eat well. When do we eat plant strong. Most of us have meals, have times of the day where we eat healthy food. What's going on during that time? Do we eat well with certain friends? Do we eat more plant-based when we go to certain restaurants? We want to be kind of like a private detective for shining the light on those times when it's easier to eat plant-based and then replicating what we learn in those scenarios. Um, in terms of strategies for helping the elephant, our emotional, impulsive side of our brain. We want to keep the elephant excited <laughs> about the change because it gets distracted easily <laughs> and goes off the rails. So how we do that is we want to actually set a really low bar for success. We want the elephant to be like, yeah, I can do this. I did it. So we do that by instead of saying, you know, I'm going to be 100% vegan from now on, something like I'm going to have vegan breakfast or I'm going to eat vegan one day a week. What is a a change, a chunk of change that feels really accessible and doable where you can be successful. Because that success, those little baby steps of success is what motivates the elephant to keep going. If the elephant gets discouraged, forget it. It's like, I'm going back to my regular diet. It's too hard. We have to make it easy for the elephant. Um, if we're ever feeling overwhelmed, like this is too big, it's not possible, that means we've bitten off more than we can chew. The change we were trying to make was too big. We got to take it down a notch. Um, we can also help the elephant by thinking about our identity. A lot of our choices in life are made by our personal sense of self, our identity. So we might identify as an animal lover or do we identify as an environmentalist or maybe we identify as a, you know, a health nut. Oh, and then how do we make a decision about our eating habits based on that identity? Okay, I am an animal lover. I'm sitting down to make my breakfast. What would an animal lover eat for breakfast, <laughs> right? We want to incorporate our identity into the choices that we're making. And then the other piece that kind of ties it all together is... Um, I call it kind of shaping the path. How do we tweak the physical environment to make it as easy as possible for us to eat plant-based? So that means we want a lot of fruits and vegetables and plant-based foods in our environment, <laughs> in our house. We want them on the counter, um, you know, washed, ready to eat. We want chopped vegetables ready to go at the, you know, as soon as we open the refrigerator door. Whatever we see, whatever is most easy to get to, that's what we're going to eat first. The foods that we want to eat less of, we want to hide. We want to put them out of sight, out of reach. So that might be in aluminum foil in the back of the freezer. It may be at the top of a cupboard where I have to go get a stool to get up in there to get it. If we have a garage, maybe we put some food in the freezer in the garage. There's fascinating research about how just moving food six feet away from us, 12 feet away from us, these increments of six feet dramatically changes how much we eat. Or if the food is it visible to us on the counter versus is it hidden and you know in a drawer, it really changes what we eat. And there's a great researcher, Brian Wanzik, who researches all of the 
kind of implications of how our food landscape changes what we eat. Um, Mindless Eating is one of his books, which I would strongly recommend. It's kind of how do we tweak our environment to trick our brain to eat what we want. (laughs) I I love some of the points that you've made because it takes me back to kind of vivid memories of my own progress. The first one was the the grocery store. Mm -hmm. You know, like... We, we, we still make a list for that exact reason <laughs> because it gets us in and out of yes. the grocery store without, oh, yeah, so delicious ice <laughs> creams or, you know, the Amy's vegan frozen pizza or yeah. whatever whatever's available. So the list definitely helps. And then the, the out of sight, out of mind mm-hmm. kind of mentality, we actually... We just got rid of it. Yes, much easier if it's not in your house. So if you're the main, um, you know, buyer of groceries or maker of meals, just easiest not to bring it in the house. That's that's kind of my rule. I'm pretty good at the grocery store buying healthy foods, but when I'm out in the world and at work, other people bring stuff that. Oh my goodness, right? Um, I love sweets and pastries and muffins. And so I give myself a pass there. I'm like, all right, it's junk food and I'm going to eat it and enjoy it. But I I limit it by what I bring into my house. Yeah, definitely. Like that's where the majority of the eating takes yeah. place. So set yourself up for success. Exactly. It's, <laughs> it was definitely the, the biggest win mm. that I can, you know, look at it, look at in, in hindsight. Mm-hmm. You know, that was truly the biggest thing that got me over you know over the over the line at the end of the day was 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 having those foods uh prepping food for Mm -hmm. work yeah having it ready to go yeah ready to go so it was just not a big I didn't have to think about it. Right. You want to not think about it. You want it to be the default mode. So the more the food is just convenient, accessible, available. I mean, for me, this is just a very silly, simple example. So when you go to the grocery store, you know, they put those little stickies on every single piece of fruit. And those, for me, take forever to pull off. And if I leave those stickies on and I'm hungry and I come home like I am too lazy to pull those little stickies off I have to do it the second I come home from the grocery store like pull the stickers off wash the fruit have it ready then I'll eat it like that little sticker is really enough of an obstacle for me and what's neat is the reverse is also true I can create a little bit of an obstacle that really slows me down so I for example love bread I can eat a loaf of bread I can eat six bagels I love it I need to slow myself down So where do I put the bagels? I have to tie them in a knot and stick them in the cupboard that requires me to go get a chair to get up there to get the bagels. And, you know, I get frustrated untying the knot because it's too tight. Like those barriers are really enough to slow me down. It's striking how uh, easily we can manipulate ourselves. (laughs) It's like minimizing and maximizing the path of resistance. Exactly. Yes. To your own benefit. Yeah. So we want to, one of the images I have in one of my slides is, you know, what if we want to push a ball, have a ball roll down a hill? What do we need to do to make that ball's path as smooth and easy as possible? What do we, what resistance do we need to get out of the way? Um, Yeah. So you can definitely, that, that is certainly creating the environment that is going to work the best for you in terms of reaching your health goals. Right, right. We don't want to make every time we eat a time we have to employ willpower or our thinking. We just want to make it the default easy because it's willpower is an exhaustible resource. It really 
requires so much brain power to use willpower. And honestly, you know, people might wonder, I, you know, I can maintain my diet until noon, but by 1 p.m., 2 p.m., I can't. Why is that? It's because you've used up all your willpower trying to resist eating whatever foods you're trying to resist. There's great research um, looking at college students and asking them to avoid eating a bowl of radishes or avoid eating a, a plate of cookies. And those that have to resist for 15 minutes, resist eating a plate of cookies, and then they're given different cognitive tasks, fail these tasks. They do half as well as the people who didn't have to resist the cookies. And they take twice as long to complete these tasks. That is how uh, draining it is to exercise our willpower. So we cannot rely on willpower when we are trying to change our diet. And it's something we hear a lot. Yes. As... As vegans, I suppose you could say we're like, you know, the leaders of of this, you know, food changing, like mm -hmm. the, the change in food movement. Yes. We're leading that. And when you are in the, the dominant category, you look at this change and you're like, oh, you must have a lot of willpower. <laughs> right. I mean, I've heard that many, many, many mm -hmm. times. And my answer is always, well, no. Mm -hmm. Willpower is just this tiny part of what makes up why I do what I do. Right, so, I've set myself up for success in other ways. Yeah, I, th mm. I think so. Another another part that I see as probably the, you know, the, the most difficult, the biggest mm -hmm. hurdle often for people, you know, we just spoke about really setting up our own personal environment. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Do people feel more out of control when they enter a, a social setting? Mm -hmm. And do you see that as the main stumbling block when it you know when it comes to 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 behavior and food change sure we're super influenced by the people around us that's why you know another part of shaping the path is creating community rallying the herd of other like-minded folks who are going to eat veg with you so finding colleagues at work who will maybe join you in meatless monday going out to veg restaurants committing to a veg pledge or yeah creating um a community of friends where you are making meals together, you are going to places together. When I first became veg, I did a lot of veg meetups, like at least once or twice a week, I was going to a restaurant with other veg folks because it was easy and delightful to eat with them and very hard to be the only vegan at the table. That's um, kind of a recipe for disaster if you're the only one. It's just much harder. You, We really, really need the support of other people with us. And I also want to, um, I guess, say to people, sometimes people feel like, well, if I can't be vegan all the time or veg all the time, then I'm not going to be it at all. It's not possible. And I would say, and I give Alex Burry a vegan outreach taught me this, you know, like maybe on Thanksgiving you are going to eat meat. You can't not. That is a family tradition and it's too hard to go against that grain. Okay, what if you're vegan every other day of the year? That's a really fantastic and much better than throwing the baby out with the bathwater, right? So maybe there is an event where you had some dairy cheese and you really wish you hadn't and you would like not to, but can you have some compassion for yourself that that was a really hard situation and you didn't have support and you weren't with other vegan like-minded folks? Yeah, it definitely shapes us, mm -hmm. that, that environment yes. of who we're closest to yes our yeah. our friends behavior if they are overweight we are more likely to be overweight if they are drinking or 
smoking, we are more likely to be doing that. We are, whatever they're eating, we pick up on it. So we want to really cultivate uh, a group of, of folks that, you know, eat like us. And, and I think, like I said, I was very lucky early on with folks who took me to the grocery store, showed me lots of options of things to eat and how to prepare it. We need that, that help. Definitely. Definitely. And the veg events yes. are a, a great way to to meet like-minded people. Yes, to uh, not feel so alone. Yeah, to, exactly. Mm -hmm. And you get to share pretty epic food with, yes. <laughs> you know, with people as well. And you can, you can have conversations that you might not regularly have with people that don't share the same right. views and yes. eat the same way. So y you can kind of start to create a new set of friends mm -hmm. with more, you know, si I suppose similar values. doesn't right. mean you have to get rid of the old ones, no. but it gives you that chance at yes. least to build some confidence and learn from others. Right. And yeah. just have support to, yeah, like, a, you know, that inner, to resource ourselves, to feel like, oh, yes, I've, here are my people and this is, I want to talk about this with them and they get it and it's not a fight and a struggle and a sadness. It, you know, can be really hard to bump up against the dominant culture. And so we need those times with, to be with other people who think like we think. Definitely. Yeah. yeah I suppose it, it can, to an extent, it can also, it can become a bubble. Sure. As well, on the other end yes. of the spectrum. Yes. You know, all the way down the other end of the spectrum, it can become, you can get the blinkers on a little bit and, <laughs> and forget that it is n a non-vegan world. Right. It's, it's easy to do. Uh, and, and, I mean, I have to acknowledge my great privilege in living in Oakland Bay Area where, you know, every restaurant has veg options and every other restaurant is vegan. <laughs> and many people are here. So it's very easy for me to have community. There are other places in the country where much, much harder to be vegan or vegetarian, not a lot of understanding or support or, um, you know, access to, to vegan food. And that makes a big giant difference. Have you spoken to those people that might live out in, you know, what we call a food desert or, um, you know, have you, had conversations with those people? Yeah, it's interesting. I have a friend who travels to Arkansas periodically, and when he first went veg, I was, you know, telling him what to eat in, in Arkansas, and he's like, you know, Melina, I'm at like a, I can't remember the name of the fast food. He's like, they have fried Snickers bars here. Like, that's what's on the menu for dessert. I, I know, I was telling him like, oh, just ask the chef to make you something vegan. Off, you know, just off the menu, it's fine. He's like, Melina, no. Like, everything here is fried in butter. It's not going to happen. <laughs> so I have some friends who travel, who live here, but travel a lot. And they have, um, you know rules around or their strategy is I'm, I'm vegan when I'm here and I am vegetarian when I go other when I'm traveling or when I'm eating at somebody else's houses right they make different compromises based on what's what's doable what's possible yeah totally I think very recently there's been a shift uh, that that really helps people in those situations and that is the shift in fast food Mm -hmm, right. In America. Yes, yes. So we were speaking with a chef down in San Diego, um, Roy Elam. Okay. And he, you know, he was on a road trip somewhere in, you know, the Midwest. 
And yeah, pull into a, a Burger King now and you can get the Impossible Whopper. Right. Carl's Jr., Del Taco, yes. Taco Bell. Things are changing. So it might not... Well, it's, it's, there's no might about it. It's, it's not the healthiest option. But if it aligns with your identity, your values, yes. you're able to stick with it. Yes. <laughs> and, and you've at least got that option when you catch yourself in a bit of a bind. Right. So... And this is to move to another stage that I'd love to talk about is how do we make it easier for everyone in the culture to eat plant-based? Like it is easier for those of us that um, whether we really care deeply about animals or the environment, there are certain values that we may align strongly with that make it easier for us to, to seek out the vegan food. But, you know, for others who maybe don't have that same connection to animals or um, they're just not as motivated by the same things, how can we make it easy for everyone to have access to plant-based foods? And that's about shifting kind of the food landscape everywhere. So can we have veg options on every menu? Can we ultimately replace animal products with plant-based products and clean animal products? If people can and eat everything they're used to eating, it tastes the same, the price is the same, it's accessible everywhere, then we've reduced the barriers, right? We've, we've lowered the bar of entry into veganism. And that's, yep. you know, shout out to the Good Food Institute. That's what their role is. How do we expand the market of plant-based foods? How do we make it easy for everybody to have access to healthy food? How do we make sure it is on the menu? Can you tell us a little bit about GFI, the Good sure. Food Institute, and your role there? Sure, yeah. So the Good Food Institute uh, is a nonprofit that came into being a few years ago. It's really expanded dramatically. They have about, when I started, there were a few of us, and now there's about 80 staff, and their sole goal is to really accelerate the success of plant-based food companies and to and uh, clean animal products. So dairy, eggs, meat made without the animal. <laughs> um, so they help startups, they help with um, you know marketing and branding and understanding the science and connecting entrepreneurs and scientists they work with you know corporations and restaurants to get more plant-based foods into the marketplace they work on policy change to make it easier for these foods to be accepted they um, basically anything that they can do to help uh, people enter into the field of, uh, you know, food science and being an entrepreneur and working in this space and helping all of the startups that are, I mean, there's so many and we're in the Bay Area, right? <laughs> Silicon Valley, so many food startups right now. If they can help them be successful, that's, that's their goal, to really transform what's available in the marketplace and to make plant-based foods um, you know, convenient for everybody and to make the price right so everybody can afford it and to make things taste the same as what people are used to eating or better because unfortunately as much as we really want people to make food choices based on their ethics, on values, right? We care about the environment, we care about the animals, we care about feeding this growing population, that's not how we make our choices. It's not. We make our choices based on price and convenience and taste. Exactly. So we have to fit that 
niche. We've got to fix that. Totally. So basically, to sum up GFI, they're doing incredible work. Yes. Incredible work. Really. <laughs> Support GFI. Really cool organization. Um, and I've heard Bruce Friedrich. Oh, good. Yes. On the Rich Roll podcast. Uh-huh. Uh, awesome, awesome guy. So yes. yeah, I, I'd highly recommend that conversation for anyone listening. So that gets kind of to attitude or behavior mm, first. Great question. So this is something where we, you know, exactly what you were digging at there. Mm-hmm. It's, it's often like, okay, I've got to get this on this person on board with, you know, animal rights mm-hmm. before they make yes. the switch to eating the Beyond Burger. Right. <laughs> I have to convince them that this is the right path. Exactly. Can mm-hmm. you tell us a little bit about how that might not be a truth? Or the only path. Yeah, there is this assumption myth that we have to change somebody's thinking, their values. We have to educate individuals before they'll make a behavior change, before they will decide that they want to eat plant-based. And so we work really hard to, to educate and to give people all the statistics and to change their mind. And what we forget is that we can change somebody's behavior. If their behaviors change, that also can change their thinking and their values. So if people start eating less meat, fewer animal products, if that is easy for them, if it's um, an option, it's much easier to then start questioning and critiquing and wondering about this cultural paradigm that we have that says kind of it's okay to eat animals right if we're eating animals three times a day it's really hard to question ourselves we're not going to we're going to be too defensive but if we've stopped eating animal products because plant-based products are everywhere and they taste great then we can we have space we have some room to be like huh how do I feel about eating animal products why was I eating animal products am I okay with that maybe I'm not so it can allow us to shift our thinking it may be that the behavior change has to happen first before we get a bigger cultural paradigm shift where the you know right now it's a smaller percent of the culture that thinks it's not okay to eat animals but how do we shift the whole bigger culture it may come from more plant-based foods in the marketplace and people just reducing their consumption of animal products and it's it's definitely shifting yeah we're seeing it absolutely before our eyes I mean we were speaking with Christy Middleton Uh earlier today and Anna asked her like has there been a moment in time since you made the switch where you know you think it's really starting to catch on and she was like well yeah right now yes (laughs) it's it's on fire it's crazy Yeah. yeah so even since you know we switched I don't think the Beyond Burger existed right. three and a half years ago. And now they're a public company. <laughs> yes, in fast food. You know, that's <laughs> like a wild yes. transformation. Yes, quickly uh, in a short period of time. And not only that, they are basically like the story of any company that's gone public in the last, is it decade? They were the strongest day one right. performers yes. on the New York Stock Exchange. Right. I mean, it's... It's amazing. And it's a sign of where things are surely leading. And again, the amount of people who are reducing, who are flexitarian, who want to eat less meat, that is a big part of the population. And the younger generation also more um, reducing. So I guess that's another message for the vegan community that those are actually the people shifting the culture. The percent of vegans is quite small still, but those people who are reducing really influence the marketplace. They are making the changes 
Definitely. And the accessibility is so important. Yes. The scalability. Yes. Right. Is is really important. Just getting that access mm-hmm. to a point where, you know, it doesn't matter where you are. If you're in Kentucky or if you're in San Francisco, you can get your hands on a Beyond Burger or... Right. Food that tastes great. Just that's used to what you're whatever. eating. You don't have to really change your diet. You can have meat, but it comes from clean meat or it comes from plants, um, tastes the same, costs the same. That's that's the goal. And with the market in general, you know, we learned today that right now, plant-based meats actually, and, you know, clean meats aren't really hitting the market yet. Not yet. It's happening. It's, <laughs> it's bubbling coming. away. I think yeah. everyone's kind of waiting for it. Yes. But it, it really only makes up this tiny fraction of the whole market right now yes there's a lot of hype there's a lot of media attention um around it Mm -hmm. and people are aware yes but how much better can it get lots right the i mean think about the fast growth of the non-dairy milk industry right if you look at 10 20 years ago it was maybe one percent of the market i mean it's well over 10 percent of my I should look, we should look up that statistic, what percentage of the market it is now. I'm sorry, that's not on the top of my head. But it has grown just astronomically. I mean, it's huge. So that same potential for plant-based meats and clean meat to take over the market is there. And I think we are at the, uh, yeah, the beginning stage of that tipping point. Um, exactly, yeah. the tipping point. We <laughs> yes. hear about that a bit. Yes. And <laughs> I think we're seeing it before our eyes. I know, our generation. It's pretty exciting. It is, it is really exciting. You know, amongst all the frustration of, of the, the news cycle and what we hear about climate and sure. animals and, yes. and health in the country, there's some pretty damning statistics mm-hmm. about, you know, where we're currently at. And as we speak, you know, there's the, the federal guidelines advisory committee getting together and, and deciding on what the, mm-hmm. the you know, the guidelines are going to be for, for 2020 and beyond. Um, we don't really know what's going to happen there, but yeah, amongst all that, there is this promise Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, I suppose it's just uh, a reason to be optimistic, which is, which is great to see. Yes. I mean, from my friends who've been in the movement 20, 30 years, they're so excited by how much change because I don't, I volunteer in the movement. I don't work directly in the movement. And so I am uh, in less of a bubble and so I can get down and then all of my friends who work in the movement who you know work in these startups and rebellious Christy mm-hmm. um, oh their enthusiasm for <laughs> the change and what's happening and the products that are coming to market it's it's really exciting yeah they it they is make cool. me feel hopeful it's <laughs> cool I, yeah I think it's something that potentially yeah I'd love to get into it's mm-hmm. uh, it is just a really cool space to be in right now yes so yeah, is it what's on the horizon for you? I suppose you know you, mm. you're so busy. Mm-hmm. You're wearing <laughs> you're wearing many hats. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What what do you see yourself uh, continuing or continuing, or if there's any new projects that you've got in mind for the future? Yeah, it's a great question. I think right now I do more speaking engagements. I 
um, you know, volunteer on boards of different food companies. I try to play an advisory role if companies are, um, you know, have human resource questions or um, team building questions, group dynamics questions, anything that I might be able to help out with. It's, yeah, how can I use my knowledge in psychology to uh, support vegans, to support plant-based food companies? That's what I'm interested in. Cool. Yeah. And what's the best way for us to find you online? Online, you can find me on Facebook, on Instagram, on Twitter. Uh, my Gmail, it's just my first name, period, last name at, at Gmail. Do you, field a, do you field a lot of questions? I did a lot more when GFI was first um, coming to fruition. Everybody was super excited about it, and Bruce was on the East Coast, and I was on the West Coast, and I felt like I was fielding stuff all day, every day, and not sleeping, and hundreds of emails, and it was such a crazy, exciting, busy time, because everybody it was so new, this, uh, this approach to activism, right? It was something that had never been done before. So everybody was like, what's happening? What is this? What's going on? And, and interested in starting food companies. And I had so many people saying, I have an idea. Should I start this company? And, you know, I was learning as I was going. So that was a busy time. It has settled down now because, like I said, GFI has about 80 staff that can field all these questions instead of me. That's <laughs> um, cool. Yeah. And are there any, like, speaking engagements that you do have lined up? I don't have any right now. Um, yeah. Well, once you, you know, if you've got any in the future, please let me know. I I'd will. love to, to let the listeners know because, yeah, it'd be cool to, to hear you speak. And, sure, yeah, and I'd love to. There's so much learning people. to do yes. in, this, uh, in this field. And there is. I think it really plays a huge part. I think it's underestimated in mm -hmm. how important yes. it can be right now. Mm-hmm. Because uh, although a lot of us are in this kind of bubble of, you know, vegan food, vegan restaurant, vegan friends, <laughs> I think there's still much to do. Um, yeah. And if we can do it as effectively right. as possible, then yes. we'll, it's a win-win. Yes, there's like, why reinvent the wheel? There's so much research and literature out there. We want to learn from the generations before. Yeah. Well, I think it's a great place to, to wrap it up. Melina, it's been an awesome conversation. I've really, really enjoyed it. Thank you, you for the time. Yes, and, thank you. You know, one day we might be able to dig a little deeper on <laughs> on a future episode. It would be it'd be really cool. I think the listeners would be would be stoked with that. Sounds fun. I'd love it. Thank you. Cheers. Hi guys, we made it. Fifty episodes, and this was certainly one of my favorites. What did you think? Let us know by leaving us a message on Instagram or a review through the iTunes or Apple Podcasts app. It's fantastic receiving feedback from you guys, and I really do appreciate it. Melena mentioned quite a few different books throughout the show, and I want to share those with you in case this conversation has whet your appetite for more information. So she mentioned, Change of Heart, What Psychology Can Teach Us About Spreading Social Change by Nick Cooney, Switch, how to Change Things When Change is Hard by C and D Heath. How to Create a Vegan World, A Pragmatic Approach by T. Lena. Mindless Eating, Why We Eat More Than We Think by B. Wansink. Next week, we'll be chatting with an amazing lady by the name of Perendi Birdie. She works in the cellular agriculture space, currently at Mission Barns in Berkeley, California, and previously at Just. We're going to be chatting about clean meat that's grown outside of the animal 
and how its impact has great potential. Until then, keep it plant-based, Veggie Mates. I look forward to catching up with you all next week.